Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. This is show number 23. I hope your world is copacetic today, but even if it isn't, let me make it better. I have two fantastic stories for you, so why don't you sit back, relax, let's listen to some stories. First up today is Compartments by Zoran Zivkovich. Zoran is a returning author to Far-Fetched Fables. If you remember, we ran a piece of his called The Tea Shop, way back in show number four. He was born in Belgrade, former Yugoslavia, in 1948. He received his master's degree in 1979 and his doctorate in 1982 from the University of Belgrade. And in 2007, Zoran was made a professor in the Faculty of Philology there, where he now teaches creative writing. He is the author of 20 books of fiction and 8 books of non-fiction, and he continues to push the boundaries of the strange and the surreal. His writing belongs to the Middle European Fantastica tradition, and you can find out more by following the link on the Triple F. It's read for you by our good friend here at the Triple F, Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And so, here is Compartments. Compartments by Zoran Zhivkovic Translated from Serbian by Alice Kapoltosic I ran as fast as my legs would carry me. The carriage had just pulled away from the buffer at the end of the track, even though it was still moving slowly had I been carrying any luggage, particularly anything heavy. I wouldn't have made it. Luckily, all I was holding was my coat and hat. I didn't know how to get onto a moving carriage. Was I first supposed to jump onto the step on the platform of the last car and then grab hold of the handrail, or was it the other way around? 
Who knows what I would have done if the back door hadn't opened just as I caught up to the car. The conductor came out onto the platform. Give me your hand, he shouted. I stretched out the arm with my coat thrown over it. He grabbed my hand and heaved mightily. The next instant I was standing next to him on the platform. Wonderful, said the conductor with a smile. I'm sorry, I replied, out of breath. Come now, you have no reason to excuse yourself. Quite the contrary, I'm delighted that you joined us. Welcome. He patted me lightly on the shoulder. We stood there for several moments without speaking, smiling at each other. I'm afraid I don't have a ticket, I said contritely. The ticket isn't important. The essential thing is that you made it. I'm extremely grateful to you. Let's go in, said the conductor, moving aside to let me enter first. I went inside the car. He came in after me, closed the door, and then locked it. Turning towards me, he held out both his hands. Please, let me take your coat and hat. Oh, I said, and gave them to him. The conductor opened a narrow closet in the wall next to the rear door. It was full of overcoats, fur coats, mackintoshes, capes, ski jackets, and windcheaters. The shelf above it held all kinds of hats and caps. There were shawls and gloves and muffs and three or four umbrellas, too. He took a wooden hanger and hung my coat on it, then placed my hat on a free spot in the corner of the shelf. Then he bent down and took a pair of slippers with large pink pom-poms out of the lower part of the closet. That's when I noticed the shoes neatly placed on the floor. They were mostly ordinary shoes of different shapes and sizes, but there were a few pairs of sandals, boots, trainers, galoshes, clogs, and thongs. The conductor put the slippers on the dark red carpet runner in front of me and then said, still bent over, Your shoes, if you please. I squatted down to untie my shoelaces. I pulled on the slippers as the conductor put my shoes away in the closet. We stood up simultaneously. Suddenly he began to stagger. His hands flew to his forehead, and he leaned his back against the closet. "'Aren't you feeling well?' I asked anxiously. "'No, no. Everything's all right,' he said in a weary voice. "'Just a little dizzy spell. It will soon pass.' The conductor was a tall, broad-shouldered man with bushy eyebrows, and this infirmity seemed unsuited to his size. He soon regained his composure, just as he'd predicted. Excuse me. Do you have low blood pressure? I've heard that people with low blood pressure feel dizzy when they stand up quickly. The conductor's reply was not immediate. It's not from low blood pressure, he said at last. Whenever I close the closet, I remember. He didn't finish the sentence. The smile of a moment before turned into a painful frown. I thought I should say something, but didn't know what. All of that has nothing to do with you, of course, he continued. Why should you be interested in my feelings? I wouldn't blame you in the slightest if you told me my past has nothing to do with you and I mustn't bore you with it. Quite the contrary, I hastened to assure him. I would love to hear it, if that will make you feel better. Oh, it will, it will! His face lit up at once. How kind of you! Such thoughtfulness is a rare thing nowadays. People are no longer sympathetic to the misfortunes of others. They don't have time for them, and sometimes all it takes is a little attention to help those near and dear to you. He paused for a moment and placed his hand on my shoulder. Thank you. Think nothing of it. We regarded each other briefly. Then he removed his hand from my shoulder. She was standing exactly where you are now. His voice altered to a deep, slow drawl. When she took off her square-toed, white leather pumps with silver buckles and stood on the runner in her stocking feet, virtually barefoot, I felt as though I'd been struck by lightning. Have you ever felt anything like that? I've never been struck by lightning. Too bad. It's hard to imagine if it hasn't happened to you. 
I was bending over, giving her some slippers, just as I gave them to you a moment ago. I barely kept my balance. Although quite improper and strictly against the rules of service, I simply couldn't take my eyes off her calves. She was wearing a rather long skirt, but even so, the little bit I could see was enough to make me throw all caution to the wind. He stopped speaking and his gaze seemed to wander off somewhere. I waited patiently for it to return. She must have understood what was going on, because why else would she just stand there while my eyes shamelessly devoured her legs? She didn't accept the slippers I offered, and she could have. In fact, common decency required it of her, the comportment of a lady, if nothing else. But no, she chose to give herself up to my lustful eyes. I wouldn't even dare to say, although it might be too strong a word, that she surrendered. You won't reproach me, I hope, for this unbecoming description? I won't. I don't know how long we stayed there like that, motionless, I bending over and she shoeless. It must have been a long time. If someone had happened along, it would have been a pretty sight to see. But no one appeared, which was unfortunate because it might have broken the spell. I might have still had a chance to come to my senses, although... May I be frank with you? You may. It was already too late. I was beyond rescue. She and I both knew it. He broke into a sob and covered his eyes with his left hand. Crying suited this large, mature man even less than the infirmity that had just overcome him. Once again, I wasn't sure what to do. Then what happened? I asked softly. He didn't reply at once. He took a large white monogrammed handkerchief out of the breast pocket of his conductor's uniform, wiped his eyes with it, and then blew his nose. Pardon me, he said in a voice that still trembled. What happened next was inevitable. She extended her right foot towards me. The worst thing is that I didn't hesitate at all, not a moment. I, who am so proud of my common sense and self-control. I put the slipper on her foot, although regulations strictly forbid it. Yes, that's what I did. Don't be the least bit surprised. I'm not surprised. Naturally, I had to touch her foot. Just lightly, but that was enough for lightning to strike me again. She took no notice of my trembling and extended her left foot without hesitation. Many would see that as female frivolity, even shamelessness. But I accepted her foot without a second thought. Embraced it, you might even say. In any case, I held it longer than the time needed to put on the slipper. She didn't object. She serenely consented to let her tiny foot stay in my huge hand. In this... He held out his right hand, palm up. We looked at it for several moments in silence, as though it still held signs of her foot. Finally, he clenched his hand into a fist and shook his head. What happened next, although dreadful, was bound to happen. You'll be horrified when I tell you. You might even be disgusted with me. I'm perfectly aware of the fact that I deserve the deepest scorn. Come now, I protested on his falling silent. No, you mustn't be kind. I don't deserve it. I'm responsible for everything. I should have held back. Regardless of the cost. I was spellbound, that's true. I had lost control of myself, that's also true. But is that any justification? Are those extenuating circumstances? You be the judge. It would be easier to make a judgment if I knew what happened. Can't you guess? I'm afraid not. 
He stared at me in disbelief. Then he bowed his head and gazed fixedly at his hands, which he was now rubbing together. I kissed her left foot, he said almost in a whisper. Oh. Escaped before I could stop it. It wasn't any kind of passionate kiss, of course, he hastened to add. I barely lowered my lips on the top, by her toes, over her stockings. I managed at least that much self-restraint. I see, came my reply, since nothing better crossed my mind. There, now you know. It must be clear to you that I am beyond redemption. But— Please, no, he said, interrupting me. There's nothing you can say that will lessen my guilt. I have to live with my damnation. Don't waste your words. It's enough that you took the time to listen to me. You are a splendid chap. Thank you. Although, let's not talk about me any more. I've already taken up too much of your time with my problems. You aren't here to listen to the lamentations of an ill-fated conductor. Are your slippers comfortable? I looked at my feet. Yes, they are. Wonderful. Then let's go, if you please. He passed me and turned left. I followed him. The corridor was wide and lined with the same carpet runner as the entrance to the car. All the windows on the right-hand side were covered with long, pleated velvet curtains, also dark red. Five branched candelabras lighted the entrance to each of the six compartments. The candle flames burned without flickering. The conductor stopped at the first compartment. He took off his hat, put it under his arm, smoothed his hair, then knocked on the glassed-in section of the door. A curtain identical to the one on the window opposite it hid the interior from view. Some time passed before a woman's small voice was heard from the compartment. Come in. The conductor gave me a brief, indecisive look before he pulled the sliding door aside and moved the curtain slightly, just enough to stick his head inside. I am pleased to inform you that we have a new passenger. The gentleman is very polished and full of compassion. I thought you might enjoy his company. Quite a while passed before the woman's voice replied, It will be our pleasure. The conductor withdrew his head, grinned at me, then pulled back the curtain and gestured toward the interior with his hand. I stopped at the entrance to the compartment. On the left, next to the door, sat a plump, balding man in a three-piece suit, with reading glasses halfway down his nose. His hands were busy knitting. A bright yellow scarf cascaded down from large knitting needles. The place next to his was empty, and beside the window, with the curtain drawn, was a tiny middle-aged woman dressed in black. The hat she was wearing was also black and had a lace veil that covered half her face. In her hands was an open book, small but thick, with a dark cover. On the right sat three young girls aged ten or eleven. They were wearing identical sailor suits, white knee socks and patent leather shoes. Long braids dangled below their caps, and their faces were exactly similar. I nodded and said, Hello. Thank you for being so kind as to let me join you. Four pairs of eyes looked at me. Only the man kept his fixed on his knitting. Come in, said the woman in black at last in a squeaky voice, giving a curt nod in return. She indicated the empty seat next to her. As soon as I entered the compartment, there came from behind me the sound of curtains moving and the sliding door closing. I sat down and folded my hands in my lap. My eyes were drawn to the large chandelier hanging directly under the compartment's high ceiling. The five candles on it were not real. Frosted light bulbs shaped like flames brightly lit the interior. I kept my eyes trained upward until the thin voice addressed me once more. You are undoubtedly wondering why I'm wearing black. I turned to my left. No, I... Let me tell you right away, she continued. I'm in mourning for my late husband. There he is, over there. 
She bent forward a bit and nodded in the direction of the man and his knitting. I turned towards him. He just sat there, deeply absorbed in his work. But his movements became a bit livelier. Mama? said the girl sitting in the middle. The lady looked at her sharply from under her veil. The girl quickly lowered her head, and the other two did the same in unison. He might not look dead, continued the woman, but don't let appearances deceive you. He's dead as far as I'm concerned. She lowered the book into her lap and took a small black handkerchief out of her left sleeve. She slipped it under her veil and dabbed at the corners of her eyes, then returned it to her sleeve. He was a wonderful man, an exemplary husband, a caring and gentle father. He devoted all his free time to his daughters, teaching them different skills that young girls need to know, acting in particular. You'd never think he'd stoop so low. And right in front of his children. Isn't it just awful? I wouldn't know. But you have every right to know. I will tell you everything, and then you can decide for yourself. Mama? said the girl next to the window without lifting her head. The woman raised her veil and shot a piercing glance with tiny black eyes. Apple! she said brusquely. Not apples, please, anything but that, replied the girl, terrified. All three! No, Mama! cried the other two girls in harmony. At once! hissed the woman. The girl in the middle quickly reached into the deep pocket of her skirt and took out three apples wrapped in white napkins. She handed one to each sister. With trembling fingers, they unwrapped the large green fruit. They didn't start eating right away, but looked pleadingly at their mother. The woman's expression was unrelenting. They sighed as they bit into the apples. I certainly must seem too strict for you, said the woman, turning to me once again. But now that I'm a widow, I have no choice. All the responsibility for raising my daughters lies with me. Should I let them degenerate like their father? No, of course not, I said, shaking my head. After hearing what happened, you might lay some of the blame on her, perhaps all the blame. You might think that he is merely the innocent victim of a cunning seductress, but it's not like that. No one can be seduced against his will, correct? Why didn't anyone seduce me like that? Seductress? I had a feeling something bad was about to happen as soon as I saw the conductor all wide-eyed when he came to ask us if we would take her into our compartment. I don't doubt in the least that she'd bewitched him beforehand. He seemed confused, even stunned. You must know what a man looks like when he's in the grip of a certain kind of woman. I can imagine. There, you see. I was just about to say that we were unable to accommodate anyone else, but my husband prevented me. I was so amazed I was speechless. He'd always left such decisions up to me before. It's only natural, wouldn't you say? Without a doubt. He said it would be an honor to have her join us. Just imagine, an honor! I shook my head. I had a fresh slight waiting for me when she came in. She simply sat down where you were sitting now, without a word of gratitude, as if that place belonged to her by birthright. She didn't even look at me, as though I wasn't in the compartment. She held her head high, flaunting and haughty. And then her scent hit me. Scent? I replied inquiringly, since the lady had broken off. Cloying, aggressive, depraved. You know who uses such a scent. Do you mean, please, we aren't alone? She nodded her head towards the girls, who were tearfully eating their apples. Oh, of course. 
Excuse me. We all realized right away what we were dealing with. But did he, as the father of the family, do anything about it? If not out of respect for his wife, then at least for the sake of his young daughters. He should have ordered her to leave at once. That would have been the only way to redeem himself, at least in part, for having so recklessly let her enter. But he didn't. He didn't throw her out. And then he had the gall to strike up a conversation with her. Lascivious, promiscuous small talk, actually. Within our earshot. As I watched our girl's blush in embarrassment, I wanted to sink through the floor. Is that possible? I turned towards the man engrossed in his knitting. Yes, quite so. And do you know what they were allegedly talking about? No. The weather. The weather? That's right. The hot sun, swollen clouds, humid air, raging storms. What's that you're saying? Yes, as if we were ignorant fools who couldn't grasp what they were really talking about. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, yes. But just wait until you hear what happened next. I waited. The lady looked at me meaningfully several moments before she said, He offered her apples. Apples? I gestured towards the girls. Yes, the same apples that those poor things now have to eat. I thought I would faint when I heard it. I shook my head. And if you'd only seen how lustfully he looked at her as she bit into the apple. As I'm sure you're aware, fruit is very juicy. But she paid no attention whatsoever to that fact. She let the juice dribble out of the corners of her mouth and run down her chin. Then he took out a handkerchief and wiped the juice. Before my very own eyes. And she let him do it calm as you please, with an impish grin. She even turned toward me briefly and gave me a defiant look. The lady raised the back of her left hand to her forehead and bowed her head dramatically. The girls across from her sniffled in unison. How was I to know, she continued after a short pause, that this was just an inoffensive prelude to what would happen in the tunnel? Mama? mumbled the girl next to the door, her mouth full. Quiet! said the woman sharply, silencing her. Even though it is our shame, there's no reason to hide it. Let everyone know what your father was like. The fact that he is now dead doesn't mitigate his guilt one bit. The girl in the middle raised her head. It looked as if she were going to protest, but then she lowered her head again and continued eating her apple. As you know said the woman, continuing our conversation. When the carriage enters a tunnel, all light disappears. We are in the pitch black. And right then, as she so ceremoniously ate the apple, he, her willing assistant, we went into a tunnel. It was the worst thing that could have happened. I don't like tunnels in the best of circumstances, and I went numb with fear. If this is how he acted while we were watching him, what would he do when we couldn't see? Just as she said this, we were plunged into darkness. A tiny hand dropped gently onto my left knee. It was just like this. You surely feel uncomfortable too, don't you? Well, yes, a little. Her hand squeezed a bit harder. Don't be afraid. This tunnel is short. The light will soon return. But at that time, unfortunately, it was very long. Long enough for him to tell her the whole story. 
Story? Yes. The story of the wax button, our most intimate secret. Until that moment, no one knew about it except the two of us. It should have stayed that way. We should have taken it to the grave with us. But he divulged it to her, shamelessly. To me, he died, completely and irrevocably, before the light returned. A quiet cough came out of the darkness to my left. I turned that way, even though I couldn't see anything. The little finger seemed to dig into my knee, so I quickly turned back around. Don't pay any attention to him. He is just trying to arouse your pity. He expects you to feel sorry for him because he's dead. But he doesn't deserve your pity, not at all. The pressure from her fingers was suddenly released. Or maybe you think otherwise. I wouldn't know. Perhaps you think that what he did wasn't so terrible. That I was unmerciful? No, actually, perhaps you even think that I'm to blame for everything. That he is only an innocent victim of my callousness. Certainly not. Of course... The tiny hand removed itself from my knee, and the chandelier lights went on the same moment. The woman once again took her handkerchief out of her sleeve, but this time she only twisted it in her lap. The girls had stopped eating their apples and were staring at us fixedly. I was wrong about you, she said in a choking voice. I believed you to be a true gentleman. But it serves me right for being so easily fooled. I clearly should have been suspicious right from the start, as soon as the conductor put in a good word for you. Polished and full of compassion, indeed. I assure you, please, not another word, she said sharply, interrupting me. Have at least a little consideration for the children. There's nothing more to say, in any case. Everything is quite clear. She rummaged for a moment through the black handbag between us, then took out a silver bell and rang it. Almost the same instant the door slid open and the conductor's head poked through the curtain. "'The gentleman will be leaving us,' she said in an authoritative voice. The conductor pulled the curtain aside without hesitation, and I stood up. I stopped at the door and turned around. The father was still engrossed in his knitting, and the mother had returned to her book. Only the girls looked at me as they continued to bite into their apples. Their chins were wet from the juice. Not knowing what to say as I left, I merely nodded briefly and went out into the corridor. The conductor quickly pulled the curtain shut behind me and closed the door. We stood for a moment facing each other in silence. Then he took a pair of manicure scissors out of his right breast pocket. Please, allow me. He took hold of my left hand and started to trim my nails, starting with a thumb. That was a mistake, of course, he said when he reached the middle finger. I shouldn't have taken you into their compartment, but all one can do is hope. I thought that things might have changed. I was waiting here in front of the door, and the silence was encouraging. I'd started to believe that things would be different this time. And then I heard the bell. I feel very embarrassed. Please forgive me. I don't blame you for anything. Before he moved to my right hand, he put the clipped nails in his pocket, then looked me straight in the eye. You talked about her, didn't you? I can only imagine what the woman said, but you mustn't believe her. Please, I implore you. She doesn't like her. Actually, it's even worse. She hates her. Although there's absolutely no reason, of course. She accuses her of something that is entirely not her fault. And she's not the reason that the woman is a widow. The woman herself is to blame for that. This time he started with the pinky. By the way, just between you and me, his death is rather suspicious. All right, he might act like he's defunct, 
But that doesn't prove a thing. What if she changes her mind and orders him to stop knitting? It wouldn't surprise me in the least. She's liable to do anything. Then what? He raised his eyes to mine. I shrugged my shoulders. Did she mention a button? He asked quietly, after hesitating a bit, concentrating on the hangnail on my index finger. I answered with a nod, although his eyes were lowered and he couldn't see it. A wax button? Yes, I said. Let me clue you in. He didn't do it right away, though. He put the manicure scissors back in his pocket along with the newly clipped nails, took out a nail file, and got down to work. She lied to you, he said after finishing three fingers on my left hand. Is that so? I replied, surprised. It wasn't made of real wax at all. It wasn't? He raised my finished hand up high, blew on it, polished the nails a bit, then took my right hand. It wasn't, he continued after finishing my ring finger. But I'm not at liberty to say anything else, unfortunately. I've already told you too much. It might cost me my job. You won't report me, I trust. He stopped filing and looked at me imploringly. I hastened to reassure him. Heaven forbid! His face lit up. I knew I could trust you. Since my other hand was now polished and inspected, he nodded in satisfaction. There. Now everything's in order. How do you feel? I spread out the fingers of both hands and looked at them. Fine, I said. Quite fine. Wonderful. Shall we continue, then? He put it in the form of a question, but didn't await my reply. He placed the file back in his pocket, turned, and headed for the entrance to the second compartment. He halted in front of it, turned towards me, and signaled with his hand that I should stop, although I hadn't moved at all. He opened the door quickly and slipped through the curtains, then closed the door behind him. He remained inside for a short time. When he emerged, he was smiling ear to ear. The brothers will receive you. It is a rare honor. Please show due consideration for their rules of behavior. Certainly. He moved aside, but did not pull the curtains open. I slipped through them as he had a moment before and entered the compartment. From behind me came the sound of the door sliding shut. Inside I found six monks. They were sitting pressed together on four seats, leaving two empty places next to the door. They were wearing long brown cowls and had white cords around their waists. One of them had his hood pulled down. He was sitting on the left next to the curtained window, head bowed, so I couldn't see his face. The attention of the other brothers was focused on him. All five were holding notebooks and writing something in them. At first no one paid any attention to me. Finally, the closest monk on the right turned towards me and put his notebook in his lap. Just like the others, he had a smoothly shaved head and a ruddy face. He put his hands over his ears and bowed to me. I returned the bow the same way. He indicated with a nod that I was to sit on the empty seat next to him. When I sat down, he raised his right index finger to his lips. We looked at each other in silence for some time. Then he took his notebook, turned the page, and started to write. When he had finished, he handed me the notebook. Please forgive me for not being able to talk to you in the normal way. The members of our order have taken a vow of silence, but there are no restrictions as far as writing is concerned. You may speak to me by whispering in my ear. I put my head close to his and whispered, I am very honored by the fact that you have taken me into your compartment. I hope I won't be any bother. The monk shook his head briskly, then set about writing in his notebook again. When he handed it to me, I saw that he'd written down my answer under his first message, and then his new words. Do you play chess by any chance? I didn't reply at once. His face was full of eagerness. 
I finally nodded. The monk quickly scribbled. Would you like a game? Here? Now? I asked in a whisper. He quickly wrote his answer. Yes. Yes. I thought it over briefly, then shrugged my shoulders. Why not? If it won't disturb the brothers, of course. I motioned my head towards the monks engrossed in their writing. On the contrary, came the new message. They won't have anything against it. They love chess, too. It's our order's favorite game. Then fine. The monk smiled and clapped his hands. The brother with the hood pulled down over his face didn't move, but the other four stopped their writing and fixed inquisitive eyes on us. My mute collocutor turned the page of his notebook, wrote something brief, and showed it to the brothers. When they read the message, there was an instant uproar. First, almost all of them jumped up from their seats, clapped each other on the shoulder, and even hugged each other. The two of us stood up, too. Then the monks went one by one to the monk next to me and kissed him on both cheeks and twice on the forehead. He stood there beaming with joy, his eyes closed. Finally, they all shook my hand firmly. I was motioned to sit down again, and when I did so, the monk I'd talked to moved to the seat across from me. One of the brothers knelt down on the dark red carpet runner and started to feel about under my seat. I raised my feet a bit to get out of his way. He pulled out a large chess set and handed it to my future opponent, but he didn't get up. He stayed on his hands and knees and moved back all the way to the door, taking up the space between us. The brother across from me opened the set, shook out the pieces on the closed notebook in his lap, then placed the board on the back of the monk on the floor. He sorted through the pieces a bit and finally singled out two white pawns. He picked them up and showed them to everyone. Four heads nodded in confirmation. He put his hands behind his back and shifted the pawns about for a while. Then he brought his hands forward, clenched into fists, and held them out in front of me. I thought of standing up and asking him in a whisper what choice there was between two pieces of the same color, but I was hemmed in. I didn't know if I would be able to sit down afterwards. In any case, it made no difference. After thinking it over briefly, I pointed to his left hand. It opened, and everyone clapped upon seeing the white pawn. Two of the monks squeezed in between the chess player and the brother with a hood pulled down over his face. The third sat on the floor in front of the one who'd loaned us his back for a table. He quickly began to sit up the pieces, but he didn't set them up in their starting positions, and he didn't use all the pieces. When he had finished, he moved back a little. All I needed was a cursory glance at the board to realize that before me was an end game. The Black King was in checkmate. I looked inquisitively at the brother on the seat across from me and shrugged my shoulders. He took his notebook, wrote something in it, and handed it to me. The message was short. Your move. I pointed at the pen in his hand. When he gave it to me, I wrote in the next empty line, But the game is over. He did not reply at once. First he showed the four observers my message in the notebook, to which they bowed deeply. Then he started to write again. On the contrary, went his new message. It has yet to begin. The rules of our order dictate that we play chess from checkmate back to the opening positions. I looked at him for several moments, then gave him back his notebook and stared at the pieces on the board. But I didn't have time to evaluate the situation there, because the lights suddenly went out. A stir broke out that same moment in the darkness. There was the rustling of cowls and then the sound of pieces flying in all directions. A voice from the side opposite me said in haste, Get up! Quick! I wasn't sure whether this was directed at me, but I obeyed. As I stood up, I collided with someone. I wanted to excuse myself, but there was no time, because that was when the singing started. 
The darkness of the compartment was filled with a woman's voice. The soprano emanated from where the monk was sitting with his hood drawn over his face. I tried to see through the murk to that side, but to no avail. The song was slow, almost dreamy, in a language I didn't understand, full of open vowels. It sounded like a dirge. I couldn't tell how it affected the monks, but it filled me at once with excitement. When it finished, it left behind the bitter feeling of something withheld. Silence reigned for a while, and then the male voice of a moment before spoke again. That is her present to our brother. I thought... I started in a whisper, but didn't finish. The vow of silence does not hold in a tunnel. You may speak freely in a normal voice. Oh, I see. We do not normally receive women into our company when we are not properly dressed. You cannot see, but we are wearing slippers instead of clogs under our robes. Nonetheless, our brother invited her in. He had the right by seniority. When she came in, she paid no attention to the others. She headed straight for him and sat on his lap. First she only looked into his eyes, holding his hands. Then she started whispering to him. This lasted for some time. All he did was nod his head. After she'd finished, she simply got up and left. Without a word. She didn't play a single game of chess. Not a single game? Not a single game. But she made up for it. You heard the song. It's captivating. It's more than that. Do you know what it's about? No. A horned egg. Really? Yes. But he doesn't recount the story all at once, of course. It wouldn't be possible, after all. It's a good thing our brother only sings in tunnels, so there are breathing spells. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to keep up. Singing in a woman's voice is very taxing. I would imagine so. The rest of us welcome the breaks, too, so we can write down what we've heard. It's immensely important. Quite so. We will have to get down to work as soon as we come out of the tunnel. Please forgive us for not being able to finish the game. It is indeed a pity, because the position was quite challenging. Think nothing of it. We'll make up for the loss the next time you visit. Please drop by at any time. With pleasure. Then goodbye. Goodbye. I stood there in the darkness. Incoherent chatter filled the compartment, punctuated by a giggle and coughing here and there. Someone's hand suddenly covered my ears. They didn't remain there long, but soon came back, a total of five times. It was only afterwards that I realized it had been a different pair of hands each time. Immediately after the last salutation, the door behind my back opened, and something slipped through the curtains. I felt a hand take hold of my arm and lead me out. The next moment I was in the corridor. "'Aren't they wonderful?' said the conductor. A large white towel was thrown over his left arm, and the small table next to him bore a little dish with a bar of wet soap, a brush, a razor, and a hand mirror in a silver frame. "'Yes, they are pleasantly gregarious,' I replied. "'Allow me.' He took me by the shoulders and set me under the candelabrum by the door. He shook out the towel, tucked it into my shirt collar, and spread it out so it covered my entire chest. Then he took the little dish and brush, and with brisk movements began whipping the soap into a foam. "'I'll let you in on a secret,' he said as he started daubing the white foam on my face. "'I pray that I may.' "'Of course.' He leaned towards me confidentially. "'Whenever I get the chance, I stand in front of their door when we're in a tunnel and I eavesdrop.' He stepped back, inspected me, removed a bit of foam from under my nose with his finger, and wiped it on the towel. "'I can't hear all that well, but it's enough. I get goosebumps every time. Her voice is angelic, isn't it?' Yes, it's divine. Listening through the door has its advantages. You don't see who's singing, and it's easy to imagine that it really is her inside. 
even though I know it isn't, unfortunately. He brought the hand with the brush to his mouth and bit the knuckle of his index finger. He stood there like that without moving, looking through me with sorrowful eyes. Forgive me, he said, snapping out of his trance. Think nothing of it. It's hard, you know. I know. But life goes on. What's to be done? He set the dish and brush on the table. He unbuttoned the upper part of his uniform, then took off his belt. He handed me the end with the buckle. Hold on to it firmly, please. He grabbed hold of the other end of the belt and stepped back to the window, tightening it. Then he took the razor from the table, opened it, and started to draw the flat side over the belt, stropping the blade first on one side and then on the other. There's only one thing I don't like about the monks. Oh? And what is that? That ruse about choosing a black or white chess piece. Yes, that's what it is. I won't shrink at all from calling a spade a spade. A ruse. They know it's dishonest, but they resort to it just the same. You're lucky you didn't play a match. How do you know I didn't? It would be quite obvious if you had. Your head would be shaved just like theirs. Why? Didn't they tell you? They've really become deceitful. That's the bet. That's what you play for. What if I'd won? What would be my prize? They don't have anything to shave. They would have to let their hair grow, and that would be much harder for them than it would be for you to have your head shaved. Your hair would grow back, while they would no longer have the right to cut their hair. But they were in no danger of losing. They are true masters at backwards chess. They've only lost once so far. She beat them. She? But they told me she didn't play at all. They told you that? Liars. They're trying to cover their shame. She not only beat them, she completely outplayed them. He looked left and right down the corridor, then drew close to me, loosening the belt. Why do you think the brother who sings has his hood on? He asked in a low voice. I have no idea. So you can't see his hair? He continued in a whisper. It's all grown out, but he won't be able to use his hood much longer. When his hair grows a bit longer, he won't be able to hide it. We'll just see what they do then. He laid the razor on the table, put on his belt, and buttoned his uniform. Then he took up the razor once again and started to shave me. His movements were light and skillful. I barely felt the touch of the blade. He finished the left side of my face before speaking again. Ha! If I could only tell you what I know about the horned egg, then none of it would look quite so idyllic. But I mustn't. I'm sure you wouldn't give me away, but that's not the point. I don't want to get either one of us into trouble. And it's far from minor, believe me. You have to treat the horned egg with cautious respect. Many have paid a high price for being caught off guard. You don't want to come to unnecessary harm, do you? As he was shaving around my mouth, I couldn't take the risk of talking. I just mumbled something vague through closed lips. It's a real joy to deal with a sensible man, he continued. That is a rare virtue nowadays. People generally act foolishly, even when I warn them about what's awaiting them. Curiosity blinds them completely, as if the world will go to ruin unless they know what's concealed behind the horned egg. They regret it afterwards, of course, but then it's too late. He took a step backwards and began to inspect me. He nodded his head, then removed the towel and wiped my face with it. He placed the towel on the table, picked up the mirror, and handed it to me. 
What do you say? I looked at myself. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. We couldn't have left that out. You can't go any further unless you're freshly shaved. He went up to the door of the third compartment, adjusted his tie a bit, then knocked. He didn't employ a normal knock. First he knocked three times quickly, then two times slowly, then three times quickly again. There was no immediate reply. The conductor turned briefly towards me and smiled an apology. Finally there came a knock from the compartment. Three slow knocks, two fast, then three slow. The conductor nodded with satisfaction and opened the door. He pushed the curtain halfway open and indicated with his other hand that I was to go inside. I went in and the door closed quickly behind me. There were only two passengers in the compartment. A painter was sitting next to the covered window on the left with an easel that held a square canvas. He had a broad beret, a red scarf around his neck, and blue overalls smeared with paint here and there. His right hand held a wooden palette and his left hand a brush. He was wearing glasses with a round frame and opaque black lenses. An unlit pipe with a curved stem hung from his mouth. A dwarf was lying on the middle seat opposite. He was wearing a turquoise leotard and pink ballet shoes. His body was very muscular, which made him asymmetrical. His legs were raised in the air, and his feet supported a large purple ball. Undress, said the painter to me, not turning his head in my direction. Excuse me? Undress, undress! repeated the dwarf. What in the world are you talking about? How do you suppose I am to paint you if you don't undress? Yes, said the dwarf, like an echo. How do you suppose? How do you suppose? I don't suppose at all. Then why did you come? Yes, why, why? I thought that, I said, turning briefly towards the door. I wanted to mention the conductor, but couldn't find the right words. So now what? 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 Maybe the best thing would be for me to leave. Leave? Out of the question. Every person who enters here must be in the picture. You certainly must realize that. Certainly, certainly. I didn't know. So you won't undress? Won't? Won't? I won't. How about partway? Partway! Partway! I shook my head. Just your pants? Pants! Pants! I shook my head even harder. All right, then at least your tie. At least! At least! Is it really necessary? I asked after hesitating briefly. Extremely necessary. How can I paint you properly if you won't take your clothes off in front of me? If I don't see your soul? I am a painter of the soul, not the routine exterior. Routine! Routine! I think I could take off my tie, I said falteringly. Wonderful. We'll try to make up for the rest with questions. Questions! Questions! Questions? I repeated like the echo of an echo, barely stopping myself from saying it twice. Yes. I will ask you six questions so that I can discern some of your particulars. They are of a rather personal nature, but this cannot be helped. The questions would not be needed, of course, if you undressed. But since you don't want to... Don't want! Don't want! I started to loosen the knot on my tie. Can this not be helped either? What? 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 This! I nodded towards the dwarf, although the painter was not looking in my direction and even if he had, it would have been hard to see anything through his blind man's glasses. This repetition of your words. Does it bother you? Bother! Bother! It grates on my nerves. 
The painter laid his brush on the little shelf at the bottom of the easel, then cracked his knuckles. The dwarf immediately started turning the ball with his feet. He did it very skillfully. The ball spun quickly in place. He hasn't always been like that. Oh, no. If you'd only had the chance to hear him before. It was a real pleasure to listen to him. Such eloquence, such oratorical skill. It's hard to believe that now, wouldn't you say? It isn't easy, I agreed. And the things he used to talk about. The quintessence of wisdom, pure philosophy indeed. For me it was the ultimate inspiration. He would talk so magnificently about the wooden dummy, and I transformed his words immediately into paintings, into a whole cycle of paintings, my life's achievement. But I didn't finish it. I was just about to start my last canvas, in which the wooden dummy would finally be unveiled, when she appeared, and she showed her true face at once. She punished him without mercy. And do you know why? No. Because of the ball. Because of the ball? Yes, because of the ball. This stupid, cheap, paltry ball. Outrageous! She wanted to take it from him, but he, of course, couldn't give it to her. He was completely unable to think without it. She, of course, had no use for it, but since she couldn't get her hands on it, she took her revenge. You'll never guess what she did. I can't. She started to undress. I don't believe it. Yes, the poor thing writhed and twisted, whined and groaned, but this didn't move her in the least. She continued heedlessly to the end. When she was finally in her birthday suit, he clearly couldn't bear it. He let out a terrible cry, then fell into this state. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. She just laughed maliciously, put on her clothes and left. She didn't even take the ball, even though he could no longer prevent her from doing so. How cruel! More than that, brutal! But she'll pay for it. 
even if I'm not able to complete the cycle about the wooden dummy, I can paint her completely nude so everyone can see what her soul is really like. No one could hold that against you. I'll paint her for sure, but let's forget that right now. Are you ready for the six questions? I deliberated a bit. I think I am. Very good. So, shall we begin? All right. Do you like to trample on young wild strawberries? No, I don't. I see. And have you ever dreamed of snails swimming upstream? No, I haven't. Aha! Did you ever sneak snowballs into matinee shows at the cinema? No. You didn't? And did you ever wonder how many stairs there are in the world? No. Interesting. Did you ever want to be a spyglass, perhaps? No, I didn't. Not even a single time? Not a single time. As you like. Here is the last question. Did you ever make a phone call standing on one leg? Never. Wonderful. You can put your tie back on. Your pose is over. And that's it? I asked as I knotted my tie. Yes. You will paint me solely on the basis of those answers? To someone who is perceptive, they say a lot about you. Of course, it would be better if you'd agree to undress. Would you care to change your mind, perhaps? No, I wouldn't. Fine. If there's nothing to be done, then we're finished. Please excuse me now. Soon there will be a tunnel, and I only paint when we're in one. He cracked his knuckles. The ball stopped spinning at once. As supple as a spring, the dwarf jumped from his reclining position onto the floor. His feet touched the carpet runner at the same moment the ball fell on his now empty seat. He bowed deeply to me and went to the door. First he put his ear against it. Then, after he heard something that I didn't, he knocked. Three fast, two slow, three fast. The response came from the other side without a moment's delay. Three slow, two fast, three slow. The dwarf grinned from ear to ear, then opened the door theatrically and drew the curtain. As I went out, I first heard, Good luck, and right after it came the echo, Good luck! Good luck! I turned to offer my own greetings, but the conductor had closed the door before I had a chance. He was now wearing a white coat over his uniform, with several chrome instruments poking out of the breast pocket. He pointed to the right of the door and said, Please sit down. A dentist's chair with its accompanying paraphernalia was there. I regarded it hesitantly. Just a routine checkup. You have no reason to worry. Make yourself comfortable. It will soon be over. I sat down in the chair reluctantly. I squinted when he turned on the large round light, which brightly illuminated my head. Open your mouth, please. After a brief hesitation, I complied. A little bit wider, if you please. That's it. He took a dental mirror out of his pocket, brought his face up close to mine, and started to inspect the inner surface of my jaw. He's a wonderful painter, he said. If you'd only had a chance to see his cycle on the wooden dummy. He grabbed me by the chin and pulled down a bit. My mouth was now yawning. But, of course, that's no longer possible. He destroyed it. He told you, didn't he? I shook my head faintly, uttering a gurgling sound. He didn't? I see. I should have suspected as much. 
Then he must have told you that she is to blame for everything. I nodded my head, this time refraining from making any noise. Of course. The easiest thing is to point the finger elsewhere. He returned the mirror to his pocket, then took out a dental probe and started using it on my lower left molars. I jumped when I suddenly felt pain. Everything is fine. The enamel is a bit worn, though. You should take more vitamins and eat fresh fruit, particularly pineapple and kiwi. I tried to say something, but it was quite incomprehensible once again. As though the truth can be hidden. I'll tell you what really happened. His brow suddenly wrinkled. He stepped back a bit. You've got a bit of tartar here. We'll remove it right away so it doesn't put pressure on your gums. Periodontal disease can quickly get the upper hand. You won't feel a thing. In place of the probe, he took up an instrument that resembled a miniature sword with a disproportionately long handle, and started to scrape off the tartar. He had an argument with the dwarf, that's what happened. They have a strange kind of relationship, if you get my drift. But let's set that aside. In any case, after the argument, the dwarf wouldn't tell him about the wooden dummy anymore. Despite him, the painter burned all his paintings, down to the last one. He almost set the place on fire. He took the sword out of my mouth. Rinse, please. He indicated a ceramic glass half-filled with water. I closed my mouth with relief. It felt completely unhinged. I sipped a bit of water and sloshed it about, then spat into the drain on my left. When he saw the incinerated paintings, the dwarf fell into a stupor. He still hasn't recovered, and I'm not sure he ever will. She arrived when it was already all over. She tried to help. She gave the dwarf the ball, and this revived him somewhat. And just see how the painter returns her favor. He spreads loathsome lies about her. Did he by any chance tell you that she took off her clothes? I verified this with a nod, not wanting to open my mouth just yet. The conductor sighed deeply. It's simply appalling how ungrateful people can be. And not just anyone, but artists. That's what's so devastating. He put the instrument on the tray next to the chair, then handed me a napkin. You should go to the dentist more often, he said as I wiped my mouth. Your teeth are in good shape, but at your age you need monthly checkups. Most certainly, I agreed. All right, we may proceed now. He waited for me to get up, then took off the white coat and threw it over the back of the chair. He rubbed his hands together and headed for the next door. Since it wasn't closed, he just drew the curtains aside and motioned me to go in. When I entered the compartment, four tall girls sitting in the corner seats jumped to their feet. They were wearing camouflage uniforms and dark yellow helmets covered with netting, decorated with leafy twigs. The legs of their loose pants were rolled up to the middle of their calf, and their feet were in basins full of water. Salute! rang out from the left-hand corner next to the window, whose curtain was drawn. They raised their clenched fists sharply to the edge of their helmets in salute, then quickly dropped their arms to their sides, remaining at attention. We all stood there without moving until I finally realized what was expected of me. I clenched my hand into a fist and saluted in the same way. At ease! resounded from the same place. The girl's stiff comportment relaxed only a little. They put their hands behind their backs and eased their stance as much as the space in the basins allowed. Please sit down! came the throaty voice of the girl who had issued the orders. She indicated the seat next to her. After I'd taken my place, the girls sat down too, backs as straight as boards. Their hands were placed on their thighs, and they looked straight ahead at each other. Their stiffness was of short duration, however. It was interrupted by a new order. TABLE! The girl to the right of the door got up at once, turned in her basin, without spilling any water. 
then took a small folding table from the luggage rack above her. She unfolded it skillfully and placed it in front of me, then sat down again. All this took no more than a few moments. Tablecloth! The girl across from the commander reached toward the storage space under the window and took out a folded orange tablecloth. She shook it open and spread it on the table in front of me. There was no need to adjust its position. Then she added an orange napkin. Utensils! The girl to my right put her hand under her seat and deftly pulled out a small suitcase. She lifted it effortlessly to her knees and opened it. It was full of various eating utensils. She took out a porcelain plate and put it on the tablecloth. Next came a knife and fork, and then she placed a crystal glass before me. Finally, she took a vase filled with fresh wild flowers out of a special compartment in the suitcase. This done, in a flash, the suitcase was back under the seat. There was no pause before the commander roared the next order. Food! Jumping up off her seat as though catapulted, the girl who had taken down the table said all in one breath, Infantry cheese and gunpowder eucalyptus sauce, three bayonet olives filled with almond shot, rocket liver commando style, beverage! The girl who had spread out the tablecloth stood up and burst out, Tank red wine! Recitation! Standing up quickly, the girl who had set the table said in a gentle, almost purring voice, On a spring morning the ladybug alights on a dandelion. All three sat down as one. Once again I needed a bit of time to figure out what I was supposed to do. I turned to my left and saluted again with a clenched fist. A brass gong and wooden hammer appeared out of somewhere in the commander's hands. The gong rang out. As though he had been waiting outside the compartment, the conductor marched inside. He was carrying a large tray with a dome-shaped cover, and he had a large white napkin thrown over his arm. He stopped at the table and gave a brief bow. Then he bent over slightly and took hold of the handle on top of the cover. Just as he was raising it, we entered a tunnel. This time the darkness was not complete. A bit of light came in from the corridor, under the three-quarters closed curtain. Even so, I didn't see what was under the cover, because the conductor's bulky figure blocked most of the faint light. He, however, did not seem bothered by the darkness. He put the cover on the empty seat across from me and served my food with skillful movements. Then he filled my glass from a small wine bottle that was also on the tray. I felt for the knife and fork. I had just managed to get a hold of something soft on the plate when the recitation began. I stopped the fork halfway to my mouth. The poem was short, some sort of haiku. The sun that has just risen illuminates a yellow flower. Enchanted, the ladybug settles down on it. The gentle breeze ripples the water of a nearby lake. The conductor spoke three verses with great elan and excitement, almost in ecstasy, like a real actor. I lowered my fork after the first verse, so I was able to applaud heartily when it was over. I expected the girls to join in, too. It might not have been according to protocol, but the poem, I thought, could not have failed to affect them. It must have touched even the most hardened military heart. Instead of applause, however, what followed was the exact opposite. First there was a giggle. Then a guffaw. Soon the whole compartment was echoing, and probably the corridor, too. I couldn't see the conductor's face in the dark, but it wasn't hard to imagine how he felt. I thought I heard his sobs through what were now waves of laughter as he removed the plate full of food in front of me and the glass full of wine. He put them on the tray and covered them. He turned on his heels, then marched sharply out of the compartment, accompanied by shrieking and mocking, unseemly exclamations. When the curtain closed behind him, we came out of the tunnel. With the light back, silence reigned as though by unspoken order. The girls, who had been howling a moment before, were once again sitting like statues, hands on their thighs, faces serious, eyes gazing straight ahead. Clear! The sharp order broke the silence. It was all done in a trice, with well-practiced moves. 
One girl picked up the utensils and put them back in the suitcase. Another took the tablecloth and napkin, folded them, and put them in the storage space under the window. And the third folded the table and put it on the luggage rack. Once again, without spilling a drop of water from the basins. They did not return to their seats after finishing their tasks. Once the table was removed, the commander stood up. Salute! Four fists sped to the helmets, then dropped to the side. I didn't have to figure out what to do anymore. The reception was over. I got up, but did not return their salute. It was against regulations, but I had to let them know what I thought of their outburst. I was boiling with anger. I had just turned to leave the compartment when whistles echoed all around me. I couldn't imagine that women, even in uniform, could whistle so loudly. And then, as though this wasn't enough, when I reached the door, I was hit by a flurry of drops. There was no need to turn around to see where the water for this shower had come from. Striving to preserve my dignity, I passed through the curtain with head held high. The chorus of whistles went silent the same moment. The conductor was waiting for me in the corridor. Instead of a tray and napkin, he was now holding a tailor's measuring tape. He was wearing only his vest, and out of its shallow pockets poked scissors, blue chalk, and a small notepad with a pencil. Attached to the sleeve above his left wrist was a pincushion filled with pins. He opened his arms wide. What can I say? Outrageous impertinence, and simply because you didn't join them in poking fun at me. But why did they do that? Ah, why? Because of the chocolate basin, that's why. Chocolate basin? That's right. If you will allow me. He put the end of the measuring tape by the knot of my tie. Might I ask you to hold this here? I pressed on the semicircle of metal with my thumb. The conductor knelt in front of me and stretched out the tape. He took hold of it at the place where it touched the floor, then got up. He looked at the measured length, took the little notebook and pencil, and made a brief note. The chocolate basin is the insignia of their regiment. It had been entrusted to their safekeeping, but they didn't look after it. They didn't? No. Now let's see the width. He went behind me and stretched the meter from one shoulder to the other, then wrote another number in the notebook. No one else is to blame. Did anyone force them to bet? No, of course not. But you know what military minds are like. They think that no one can beat them. Please be so kind as to stretch out your arm. He measured from under my arm to the end of my sleeve. A third note went into the notebook. They were convinced they would easily win the bet. Could anyone outdo them in drinking wine? And a woman to boot? Not on your life. Allow me. He opened up my jacket, then put the tape measure around my waist. He shook his head, looking at the number. You should pay better attention to your weight. It's much easier to put on than take it off. Can you imagine how many bottles they drank? I can't. Twenty-six! Believe it or not, without eating anything. So much wine on an empty stomach. Unbelievable! I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't served them myself. I tried to warn them that it would not end well, but all in vain. Who has ever brought unruly soldiers to their senses? They were disdainfully dismissive and simply ordered a new round. And afterwards, when they lost, they blamed me. You? Yes, me. Allegedly, I'd put something in the wine. As if that's possible. And what reason would I have to do that? Go on, you tell me. None. None, of course. But they had to find a scapegoat. Let's see your pant legs. Spread your legs a little, please. I did as I was told. The conductor measured the inner leg, then wrote it down. There. Now we have all your measurements. 
In any case, if there had been something in the wine, it would have affected her, too. They drank out of the same bottle, but she remained fully conscious, while the girls finally passed out after the twenty-sixth bottle. Who wouldn't? That much wine would kill a lot of people. That's right. When they came to, instead of the chocolate basin, they found their feet in tin basins. And that's not all. The bet says they can't take them out until they learn at least one haiku by heart. Only one? Yes, but they won't. Not for anything in the world. They would rather keep their feet in the basins indefinitely, for the sake of their pride. That sounds more like stubbornness to me. Exactly. You put your finger on it. Stubbornness, no doubt about it. And hypocritical stubbornness to boot. And do you know why? No, I don't. Because they're pretending. Long ago they learned by heart that haiku about the ladybug and the dandelion, but they just won't admit it. Is that so? Clear as day. They always request that I recite the same one. I've repeated it so many times that probably the seats in the compartment have memorized it, let alone four bright, perceptive girls. They don't take just anyone into their women's units. There is a strict selection process. After all, there are only three verses. But instead of repeating the haiku with me and freeing themselves from the humiliating act of keeping their feet in a basin, they would rather make vicious fun of me. So be it. It certainly isn't easy for me. But they are the ones who pay the price. What shade would you like? Excuse me? What shade of fabric? For your suit? Oh. I thought it over briefly. White. An excellent choice. Many people wrongly consider that only a dark suit is appropriate for formal occasions, but this is a mistaken belief, of course. There is nothing more elegant than a white suit, particularly when the lighting is weak. You always stand out. What kind of lapels would you like, narrow or wide? This time I didn't hesitate. Wide. The conductor applauded. Excellent! There is nothing as telling as a man's lapels. Narrow lapels are worn only by the narrow of mind, those with hidebound views, miserly and malign, and disposed to gout, while a man of the world is recognized above all by his wide lapels. Congratulations! He stretched out his hand with a tape measure thrown over it, and we shook hands firmly. All right, now let's move on. He headed towards the fifth compartment. He opened the door without knocking and stuck his head through the curtain. I didn't hear him say anything. He soon pulled his head out and motioned me in with his hand. If you please. There were three passengers in the compartment. A young nurse in a white uniform was sitting on the left, next to the curtained window. Blonde curls tumbled from under her white cap. There was a healthy, ripe look to her. Across from her sat an old man and woman holding hands, their heads drawn together. I'd never seen people as old as they were. They had completely wrinkled skin, inflamed eyes, very thin hair, and they were stooped. The frozen smiles on their faces looked like death masks. As soon as the door closed, the nurse stood up and came over to me. Before I knew what was happening, she raised the bag she was holding way up high and sprinkled confetti all over my head. Then she clapped gaily. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! I stood there in bewilderment a few moments, sprinkled with multicolored paper flakes. Whose birthday? The gentleman's, of course, she said, indicating the old man. Oh! I replied, then bowed to him. Happy birthday, sir. The two old folks just kept on smiling. The nurse returned to her seat, swaying her hips. She pointed to the spot next to her. Have a seat.
Before I sat down, I shook off a bit of the confetti. Only then did I notice that the carpet runner was practically covered with it. I'm sorry, I didn't know. Otherwise, I would have brought a present, to be sure. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that you came. It means a lot to both of them. She looked at them tenderly. My pleasure. I bowed once again. How old do you think he is? I shrugged my shoulders. Really? I wouldn't know. One hundred and seventy-six. One hundred and seventy-six? I said aghast. That's right. Although you'd never say so. He looks at least thirty-five years younger, doesn't he? The nurse winked at me. Why, of course, I hastened to agree. At least. Actually, I wouldn't think him more than one hundred and twenty-eight and a half. I thank you for the compliment in his name. The nurse smiled and dimples appeared at the corners of her mouth. If you're interested, I'll tell you what he has to thank for his longevity. Of course I'm interested, I said without a moment's hesitation. The time he spent in prison. In prison? Yes, he spent exactly one hundred and six years, eight months, eleven days, and two hours in prison. He was sentenced to life in prison, but was recently released for good behavior. If I'm not being unduly inquisitive, why was he sentenced to such a long punishment? He ate his first wife. I swallowed the lump in my throat. Eight? That's right. Not all at once, of course. Over seventy-six days. This was taken as a mitigating circumstance during the trial. Otherwise, he might have been sent to the gallows. But please don't ask me anything else about that ghastly event. Talking about it always upsets him, and that's not good for his weak heart. In any case, he has completely repaid his debt to society. I looked at the old man across from me. It seemed that nothing could cloud the cheerful serenity on his face. Madam is his second wife, I presume? Yes. They met seventy-two years ago by pigeon carrier mail. She was only eighteen at the time. They exchanged photographs, and it was love at first sight. They married in prison not long after. Wasn't she bothered by what had put him in prison? I asked in a low voice. Not at all. Love works wonders. She closed her eyes to it. You can imagine how happy she was when she finally saw him free. But this romance wouldn't have had a happy turn if he hadn't become friends with the cook in prison. The cook? Yes. He was also in prison, sentenced for the brutal murder of his seven daughters, although he never confessed to the crime. As a young medical corps lieutenant, the cook spent several years as a prisoner of war in the jungle. He barely survived, but he brought an amazing talisman back with him, a glass corkscrew. He received it from a tribal chieftain whose son he'd saved from a certain death from a tropical insect bite. The nurse reached into her pocket and took out a bag of candy. Help yourself, she said, holding it out towards me. No, thank you, I don't eat candy. Please, it's his birthday. You must help yourself to something. I took one, but just held it in my hand without unwrapping it. The glass corkscrew gives longevity to its owner. The cook, however, decided to kill himself, unable to bear the burden of being unjustly sentenced. Before he poisoned himself, he gave the talisman to the only friend he had in prison. Why, that's just like an old fairy tale. Yes, except this one won't have a happy ending. It won't? No, he doesn't have the talisman anymore. He certainly won't live to see his next birthday. You don't say? And what happened to the glass corkscrew? He gave it away. Whom did he give it to? The nurse drew a bit closer to me and whispered, 
You already know who he gave it to. It's not hard to guess. You mean... She gave a brief nod. As soon as she entered our compartment, he took the talisman out of the leather bag he wore at his waist and gave it to her, as though he'd just been waiting for her to appear. But why? So that he could die with his wife. Her days are numbered. The doctors don't give her more than three and a half months. They will end their lives together. They have made a vow to die together. Isn't that romantic? Yes, it is. A genuine melodrama. Truly. The nurse got up. Now we must say goodbye. There's a tunnel coming up, and these two don't like to miss any of them. Who can blame them after all the decades of separation and deprivation? They don't have many opportunities left to be intimate. I got up as well. Will you stay inside too? I asked, taken aback. Of course. I'm a nurse. They might need my help. At their age, such things don't go very smoothly. And my presence won't bother them in the dark. I bowed towards the snuggling couple. Goodbye. Goodbye, replied the nurse. They greatly appreciate the fact that you visited them on this of all days. They will never forget you. The dimples appeared at the edge of her mouth again. I put the piece of candy in my pocket and went out into the corridor. The conductor was standing in front of the door. This way, please. He motioned towards a four-sided canvas screen to my left that looked like a changing booth in a clothes store. It was shoulder high. I went in between the two sides that were ajar, and he closed them after me. Although it didn't look like it from the outside, there was quite a bit of space within. A white suit was hanging on one wall, a white shirt was draped over it, and on the floor were white shoes and socks. You can hand me your clothes over the top, and leave your slippers inside. I'll take care of everything. I started to undress. Is this really necessary? Yes, it is. You must be properly dressed. What for? For the last compartment, of course. Oh, I see. I handed my coat to the conductor. Did she mention the cook? Yes. That part of the story has the most holes in it. Really? Above all, it's not at all certain that he was a prisoner of war, and even less in the jungle. You don't say. Various rumors are making the rounds. The most convincing one to me is the story that he was a missionary to a cannibal desert tribe, and an unsuccessful missionary to boot. Instead of him converting them, they converted him. Are you saying... I handed my shirt and tie over the screen. Yes, and I'll tell you one more thing, but in strict confidence. It's quite possible that there was no cook. What do you mean? I asked, taking off my socks and slippers. It's quite simple. The missionary was actually the gentleman himself. He returned to civilization with the talisman of longevity, which is all right, but with cannibalistic habits, which certainly is not. Judge for yourself. If that weren't true, why would he have eaten his wife? Whoever would do something like that out of the blue? No one, I suppose. There, you see? I'm telling you there's something fishy there without even mentioning the nurse. With her, things become dark and shady. What are you saying? I never would have thought. She seemed so good-natured and harmless. She even offered me candy. I threw my pants over the top of the screen. The conductor's face suddenly turned pale. You didn't eat any, did you? No, I don't like candy. I just put it in my jacket pocket. 
Thank heavens. I forgot to warn you. I'll get rid of it at once. You can't even imagine what might have happened to you. What? I took the shirt off the hanger and started to put it on. You're better off not knowing. The best thing is to have nothing to do with cannibals. The problem is that they want to have something to do with you. That's true, unfortunately. I hope the suit looks good on you. I'm sure it will, I took the pants. The cloth looks first class. The best that could be found. It doesn't stain at all, as you will see. In addition, it needs almost no ironing, and it is very soft. The pants aren't tight around my waist. That's very important. I can't stand tight pants. If the measurements are taken properly, the suit should fit like a glove. Many tailors don't take sufficient care, and then wonder where they went wrong. I put on the jacket. It looks perfect. Just wait until you see yourself in a mirror. I looked over the top of the screen. The conductor was holding a large mirror in front of him. Just a moment. I bent down and quickly put on the shoes. They were a very high-quality white leather, light and supple. I pushed the side of the screen and came out. Wonderful! exclaimed the conductor, eyeing me from head to toe. Here, see for yourself. In the mirror, I saw an elegant man dressed to the nines, who would fit quite nicely into any formal occasion. Excellent, I concurred. Just two more details, said the conductor. He held out a white hat from behind the mirror, and then leaned the large oval between two windows in the corridor. The hat also seemed made to order for me. I nodded my head in satisfaction. And here's the bow tie. It was over his left sleeve, large and white, as was to be expected. Allow me. He raised my shirt collar, attached the tie in the back, then lowered the collar. He stepped back a bit and examined me once again. There. Now everything is perfect. You are utterly ready. He led me towards the last compartment. She only receives when we're in a tunnel, he said, once we had stopped in front of the door. But then it's dark. Right. In addition, I will have to put a blindfold over your eyes. He took a long band made of white silk out of his right pocket. Why is that? He tied the band behind my head, underneath the hat. Because that's the way things are done. It's not too tight, is it? No. Can you see anything? No. Good. We'll soon be in a tunnel. Be ready. When I give you a push, go inside. Stop right by the door. You will have to stand, unfortunately, because all the places are taken. You won't find that too difficult, will you? No. There was a brief moment of silence, and then the conductor spoke again. His voice was low and pleading. If she asks about me? Although she won't, of course. Why should she, anyway? Who am I, after all? But nonetheless, a man mustn't lose hope. What would life be without hope? So, if she mentions me, please tell her that I am here. Always. All she has to do is, regardless of everything, nothing else is important except... She is still... Tell that to her, I implore you. That very moment he nudged me in the back. I hesitated a bit because I didn't hear the door opening in front of me. But I took a step forward all the same. I stopped after the second step. Take off the blindfold. A woman's voice came from my left, somewhat farther away, 
it was soft and lilting. I untied the knot at the back of my head. When the blindfold fell off, I wasn't in total darkness as I'd expected. The shapes on the five seats were outlined by a weak glow, as if edged by tiny sparks. They were disproportionately large, occupying the same space the passengers would have. The wax button to my right was hexagonal, with a double ring of holes that flickered with a bluish tinge. The horned egg in the middle had two bent protuberances in its lower part, resembling stunted limbs, with points that seemed to glow. The wooden dummy next to the window had been pierced at the top, and out of the hole flowed drops of liquid fire. The chocolate basin to my left contained something gelatinous and fluorescent. The glass corkscrew on the seat next to it was periodically suffused with short green flashes that seemed to come from somewhere inside. The last seat in the row was the opaque heart of darkness. Put the blindfold back on, said the darkness. I did as I was told. What do you see? I don't see anything. Take a better look. I took a better look. I see an apple that has fallen off a tree. What is it like? Large, green, and juicy. Put it back on the tree. Put it back? Yes. Apples should be on trees, shouldn't they? I held it up to a branch, and it clung to it as though drawn by a magnet. Doesn't it look nice there? Lovely. And now look again. I see the figure of a black queen. What is her hair like? Long and red. Wavy. Stroke it. I shook my head. I don't dare. Don't hold back. She will enjoy it. I gently drew my hand over the cascades. The queen lit up with joy and ran forward. What a light step she has. As though she's not even touching the ground. Look once again. I see a large purple ball. Throw it up into the air. Into the air? Yes. Don't worry. Nothing will happen to it. I threw it up. The ball started changing color as it got smaller and smaller. The purple turned to turquoise, the turquoise to blue, the blue to white, the white turned colorless. Did it disappear? No, it's still going up. You have set it free. What do you see now? I see a yellow flower. What is on the yellow flower? A ladybug. Blow on it softly. But I'll frighten it. No, you won't. Ladybugs love air currents. I blew a little puff towards the ladybug. As though set in motion by a breeze rippling the water of a lake, it spread its wings and fluttered off. Isn't it gracious? Like a ballerina. Look one last time. I see the bars on a prison door. Pull them apart. How can I pull steel bars apart? It's not at all hard. Try. I flexed my muscles, but no effort was needed. The bars gave way as though made of rubber and stayed apart. That is your way out. My way out? Yes. Go through the opening. Now? Now. Everything has been done. I had already started to pull myself through when I remembered something. I turned towards the heart of darkness. What about the conductor? Tell him not to lose hope. That is what is most important. That will make him very happy, I said, beaming. I know, replied the melodic voice. On the other side of the bars I was still in darkness. Then I felt someone's hand on the back of my head, and the white silk blindfold fell off my eyes. Squinting, I saw before me the space at the end of the carriage. 
To the left was the door leading to the back platform, and to the right was the clothes closet. If you please, said the conductor, stepping in front of me. In his left hand was a medium-sized brown leather suitcase. Everything is neatly packed inside. The laundry has been washed, the suit ironed, the shoes polished, the hat brushed, and the coat dry-cleaned. There was a stain in the lining that wouldn't come out any other way. I am extremely grateful. How much do I owe you for all you've done for me? This wonderful suit, too. And I must finally pay for the ticket. Think nothing of it. Any payment is out of the question. It was an honor to be of service. I held out my hand. Thank you once again, from the bottom of my heart. We shook hands, but he held on to mine. Did she say anything, perhaps? He said in a small voice. Oh, it almost slipped my mind. Yes, she said not to lose hope. That's what is most important. The conductor suddenly fell to his knees before me. He brought my hand to his lips and kissed it. I tried to pull it away, but he wouldn't let go. He pressed his cheek against it. I knew it. As soon as I saw you, your kindness, it, it was all so clear to me. No one else would she otherwise... Just how much? His voice faded into sobbing. I felt my hand turn wet and stopped trying to pull it free. The conductor stayed in that position a little longer, and then seemed to come out of his daze. He abruptly let go of my hand, got up, and wiped the tears off his face with his fingertips. Please excuse me. A moment of weakness, it will not be repeated. You surely understand, I hope. I nodded. Certainly. Good. Now, unfortunately, the time has come to say goodbye. It always comes, there's nothing to be done. Such is the life of a conductor. Meetings and farewells. I believe that in spite of everything, you had a nice time with us. I had a very nice time. He handed me the suitcase, then unlocked the door and motioned towards the platform. I went out onto it, and he followed behind. We stood there facing each other for several moments. It seemed as if one of us might say something else, but when this didn't happen, I smiled, bowed, and descended to the station platform. As always, Mr. Zivkovich, you have surpassed yourself. I now really want to meet that woman, but at the same time, not. Hmm. Let's move on to our second story. It's called In the Nightmare Garden by Shinoa Carol Brad. Shinoa lives in Southern California with her awesome brother and dancing dog. Her short stories have appeared online and in over two dozen anthologies, and she's also launched an e-book serial of Victorian occult mysteries, featuring her amateur detectives Fidget and Klein. When not writing, she enjoys crocheting, reading, and binging on Netflix till her eyes bleed. She's also a huge fan of the Triple F. So for more information, you can visit her homepage, links on the Triple F, of course. She has a Kickstarter project that you can have a look at, too. Links to be found on our page, too. It's read for us today by Cheryl Phipps. Cheryl was born in Canada and presently resides there, but has also lived in Jamaica and Maryland. By the time she was 16, she had moved 15 times. She used storytelling as a way to fit in whenever she was the new kid in town. Cheryl obtained her honours BA in sociology at the University of Western Ontario, 
and she spent many years teaching call centre representatives customer service and communication skills. She wrote a book that won second place in an international literary contest. She's always loved words, grammar, reading, acting and writing, and all of these things came together for Cheryl in the form of voiceover work, which she loves. You can learn more at cherylphipps.ca. And so, here it is. In the Nightmare Garden Written by Shanoa Carol Brad Narrated by Cheryl Phipps The neighbor kids called Lucida Cole a witch, partially because she lived in a creaky old house, but mostly because she had a garden of nightmares. It wasn't really her fault. The garden had come with the house. She just kept it up. The breeze carried soft weeping, but she pretended not to hear it at first. Lucida looked up between the branches of the nearest tree and plucked a fruit, squeezing it to test for ripeness. She bit in and felt one of her bottom teeth wiggle. Lucida carefully chewed the tart bite and swallowed, then spat out the tooth and ran a finger along the rest of her teeth, testing for stability. They all seemed sturdy. She tossed the unripe fruit aside and it rolled out of sight beneath a naked-in-public shrub. The tooth she'd spat out slowly melted away as the nightmare's astringent taste left her tongue. Lucida liked to make condiments fresh from her garden. Her test-you-didn't-study-for marmalade won first prize at last year's county fair when the judges said they'd never tasted a jam that made their hearts race before. Her nightmares were an acquired taste, sure, but beyond being just piquant, they added a layer of perspective to every meal. After a breakfast of Lost in the Woods on toast, the day can only get better, and no matter how dry and overdone the steak, a mushroom and giant spider gravy will make the diner suddenly blissfully aware that their meal came from a cow with only four legs. That sobbing came again, and she frowned. Lucida picked a few plump, death-of-a-loved-one apples for a tart later and tied them up in her apron before turning to track down the sound. She ducked around a falling vine to find the source of the sound crouching in the shade of a running-in-slow-motion tree. A local boy, clutching his stomach and writhing, his lips stained blue from the pernicious nightmare weeds she fought constantly. Some nightmares were too hard to deal with, too severe to be useful. It seemed that no matter how hard she focused on pulling them up, more were always ready to sprout. They made great compost, though. Nothing nurtures better than conquered fears. She frowned down at the boy. It wasn't uncommon for neighborhood kids to sneak in and trip on unripe nightmares, but they often went overboard, and more than one could make a body ill. She nudged him with her toe. You dying? The boy opened weepy eyes. I think so. Well, that won't do. Your parents would probably have something to say about that. She squatted and hoisted the boy by his sweaty armpits. His legs wobbled like a sick dog's. Come on, let's get you inside and see what can be done. 
Lucida helped him to the bathroom, where she encouraged him to vomit up whatever it was he'd eaten. It came out in a variety of sludgy colors, and after he'd emptied his stomach, she set the table with lightly buttered toast and a mug of tea, which he eyed suspiciously. Calm down, it's just chamomile. He took a few cautious sips and then sat back. You look better already. How do you feel? Stupid, he grumbled. I didn't want to come here in the first place, but the other guys made fun of me. Lucida took out a short knife and began paring one of the apples she'd collected. Seems like you ought to listen to your gut more often and tell your friends to shove it. The boy cracked a queasy smile. Yeah, maybe. They didn't seem to care. I mean, when I got sick, everyone just scattered. Lucida nodded and continued peeling. She recognized him now that he was regaining some color. Little Matty Phelps, from a couple blocks over. He'd been among the boys who'd thrown eggs at her house and painted a rude word across her driveway last Halloween. She cut a thin slice and offered it to him. He shook his head. No more nightmares for me. She shrugged and crunched on the little slice. I can see where you're coming from. Lots of things seem scary at first, or terrible, and our first reaction is to avoid it. But if you take a moment to appreciate the things you fear, she leaned back in her chair and took a deep breath. You'll notice that the air starts smelling a little cleaner. The sun seems to shine brighter, and when you feel those happy moments, they touch you a little deeper. She cut several more slices and laid one, paper thin, on his toast plate. After a silent moment, the boy reached out and took it. There you go. As he chewed, his eyes widened and began to fill with tears. My, my mom, he whispered. Lucida leaned forward and squeezed his hand. It's okay, son. It's not real. But now that you've seen it in dreams, think how happy you'll be to return home and find her safe. Think how glad you'll be to do your chores and help out with dinner. That's what nightmares can offer you, Maddie. Every day, new, fresh, and precious. She wiped a tear from her own cheek as she swallowed her slice. Matthew ate some toast and finished his tea, then gave her a wary smile. I guess the trick is moderation, huh? No point avoiding fear, but no need to throw yourself into it either. Lucida nodded. Precisely. Time for you to head on home now, I think. I have a pie to bake. He didn't thank her, but she hadn't expected him to. She watched him walk down the sagging porch steps and saw that he turned his face up to catch the sun and seemed to breathe a little deeper. Lucida smiled and turned back into her empty old house to finish skinning her nightmares. Quirky little tale, eh? I loved it, even though it was a bit creepy. I don't normally do creepy very well. So that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing it and no selling it. 
If you're feeling generous, please consider donating a little something. One-time donations or monthly contributions, it all goes to keep bringing you great fiction every week. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy, keep smiling, and have an extra beverage on me. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.